0: Keep your Bibles uh, right on uh, Matthew 26, 17 through 29. That's going to be our passage for this morning. We're going to continue in our, our series on the work of Christ. Last Sunday, we looked at the triumphal entry, which showed us two things about Christ's work. If you remember, if you were with us, first, it showed that he fulfilled prophecy. That was part of his ministry. Part of his work was to fulfill prophecy as the Messiah. And secondly, it showed that he fulfilled and continues to fulfill three offices. Do you remember what they were? Prophet, priest, and king. Uh, The munis triplex, that's the Latin phrase that describes those three offices. Uh, So that's what we focused on last Sunday. This morning, we will be looking at the Last Supper and how it points or illustrates the work of Christ. So I've divided our passage into three sections. Let's begin with section one, and I would call this section the preparations, the preparations. Okay, and that's verses 17 through 19. I'll just read it again. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare uh, for you to eat the Passover? And Jesus replied, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. So that's our first section. That's our first block. As I said, last week we looked at the triumphal entry, uh, which took place on, uh, on a Sunday, basically. We now fast forward to Thursday. Okay, so we were on, you know, last Sunday we were looking at what took place on a Sunday as he entered Jerusalem. Now we're fast forwarding through the week to Thursday, which Matthew calls the first day of unleavened bread. You see that right in the first line. We have fast-forwarded a couple of days. Um, The Jewish calendar, you know, it was filled with many, many religious celebrations, and and many of them uh, would involve a feast of some kind. You had the Feast of Pentecost or of Weeks. Uh, that commemorated God's provision at harvest time. It was that feast with which the Jews were celebrating in Jerusalem. When they were celebrating in Jerusalem, that's when the Holy Spirit came down. and, And really, in some ways, the church sort of began. You remember that Peter was preaching his very first sermon. And i tell you, as a preacher, when you preach your very first sermon and when the Holy Spirit does a work like that, boy, that sets a precedent for you, right? And all those dull Sundays when you preach and it doesn't seem like a whole lot's going on. You must be thinking, what happened, man? That first one was insane. Now I got nothing. Uh, So I can't imagine what Peter must have been thinking after the fact, but we're not called to ponder those things. We're called to be faithful. But his very first sermon in this amazing revival breaks out, and that was on the Feast of Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks. Yeah, the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths, uh, commemorated Israel's wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. I mean, they lived in temporary dwellings and were dependent on God's provision for food and water. Uh, you have the Day of Atonement. That was the highest holy day of the year, culminating in the once-a-year sacrifice offered for, offered for sins in the Holy of Holies by the high priest. The blood of the sacrifice was sprinkled on the altar, symbolizing God's provision of atonement for the sins of his people. That was another huge, huge ceremony that they had. You also had the Feast of Purim, uh, which pointed to God's protection through Queen Esther. Uh, And you have another one called the Feast of Dedication, which is referred to today as Hanukkah. And that particular feast and celebration commemorated Judas Maccabeus' victory over Antiochus Epiphanes. And we even looked at that. That was during that inter or that between the Testaments period, that 400-year period. So the Jews developed a feast uh, in response to that. It's called Hanukkah. They celebrate it today. In the Jewish calendar, there was a feast that took place during the middle of the year in the springtime. And this particular one may have drawn more pilgrims and people to Jerusalem than any of the others, I suspect. Uh, It it drew hundreds and hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people and pilgrims to Jerusalem. It was known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. uh, And we would typically think of it as the Passover. It could be called the Feast of Passover as well. I think the Feast of Unleavened Bread was like a seven-day Celebration, And right in the middle of it, the Passover took place. It was like this 24-hour period where they did the, the Passover meal. But the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover are kind of synonymous. They're kind of the same thing. The Passover was very, very important to the Jewish people. God had commanded them to observe it every year to commemorate his redemptive action in delivering his people from slavery in Egypt. I just want to talk about the Passover a little bit because that's what our text focuses on. In Exodus 9, we read about how God commanded Pharaoh to let the people go, but Pharaoh refused. In Exodus chapters 7 through 10, we read about how God sent nine horrendous plagues on the Egyptians. The waters became blood. You had frogs, lice, flies, and locusts infested the land. You had hail that destroyed all the crops and so on. In Exodus 11, we read about the 10th plague which was the last and worst of the plagues, which had to do with the death of all the firstborn in the land, both sons and livestock. In Exodus 12, we see God execute that plague and bring death on the Egyptians and on Pharaoh's house. We also see that he took intricate steps to spare the lives of the Israelites' firstborn children and livestock. Each family was commanded to select a lamb without blemish, kill it, and smear the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of the home to identify it as the abode of a family which belonged to God. God then promised that he would pass over those houses or those homes. As a result of that plague, the greatest redemptive act in the Old Testament took place. God spared His people, then delivered them out of the hands of Pharaoh and out of bondage in Egypt. The Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover commemorated the events that we've, you know, I've just described to you. And this celebration had just begun in Jerusalem at this point in the narrative and what we're looking at. Jesus had made arrangements with the owner of a house which featured an upper room where he and his disciples would enjoy the Passover meal together. When the disciples came to him and asked where he would like to eat the meal, he gave some instructions. He said, go into the city uh, to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. Now, I just want to break down this, this verse a little bit here. I want you to look at the the phrase, a certain man. Now, this is interesting because this is, the, this is like the Passover festival. This is like probably one of the biggest holidays in, in, in Jerusalem, in Israel. And, you know, and, and here we see this in the story. I want you to go look for a certain man. Well, you know, during this time of year, the city would have been filled with a ridiculous amount of men. I mean, a lot of people. I want you to find a certain man. Well, well, how do we know which one's the certain man? I mean, this is craziness. It's like, you know, go into the mall and find this guy. And this would have been way worse. Okay, I go into the mall, there's guys everywhere. How do I know? How would they have been able to identify this particular certain man? The Gospel of Mark includes an important detail that we don't see here in Matthew... In Mark 14, 13, it says that this certain man would be carrying a jar of water. It'd be a guy that's carrying a jar of water. Now, immediately I'm thinking, okay, so we've narrowed it down a little bit. You've got, you know, a million men in the city, and now we have one carrying a jar of water. How many of these men that are in the city for the Passover festival would be carrying jars of water? Probably only this guy out of all of them. And the reason why is because it was not a man's work to carry water jars. You just go back and read through the Old Testament. And you'll see women at the wells all the time drawing water. So when you have a guy in a city of a lot of people, and there's one dude out of all of them, it almost would have been like Finding Waldo, I think, like the striped shirt that Kelly wears all the time. And I never that joke never gets old to me. We were going to put a sign up above him when he was playing the drums that had an arrow pointing down and said, I found him but he wouldn't play along but if you were to you know if you were to enter the city and saw a guy carrying a jar of water that guy would stick out like a sore thumb because that was a lady's work it was not considered a man's work to carry jars of water they were responsible to do other things so when the disciples entered the city one of the first things they would notice is a guy carrying a jar of water he was the certain man and when they saw him, they were to immediately connect with him and recite Jesus' words, which may have been a type of code or something of, to that effect. Notice the word teacher and how it is capitalized. These are all the little things you need to pick out of these verses when you look at them. You see that? Teacher and how it's capitalized. Teacher is a title Uh, that had been given to Jesus by some of his disciples. And when I say some of his disciples, I'm not referring to the 12. It would be the outer ring disciples, those who were following him that weren't as close to him, just the general people that were following him. It was a title that that just regular disciples had given to him. And this guy, I mean, look at this. Teacher is a title that was given to Jesus by some of his disciples, which means what? What does it mean? It means that this guy carrying the jar of water would have recognized Jesus as the teacher with a capital T, which means that he was probably a disciple of Jesus's, especially since it's capitalized. It's obviously a title. And so this guy was carrying a jar of water. That would have stuck out like a sore thumb. And then Jesus said, I want you to address me as teacher to him. He would have known what that meant. He was very likely a disciple of Jesus Christ, because teachers, teacher is synonymous with rabbi, and rabbis instructed disciples or students, and so there's all the connection there. This guy is a disciple carrying a bottle or jar of water. Notice also the phrase, my time is at hand. What does that tell us? It tells us that Jesus knew exactly what was about to happen to him. He knew that his time of suffering, or we call it passion, was about to begin. Mark's gospel includes another small detail, which is interesting, and I I mentioned it just a moment ago, the home where the water guy, uh, the water jug guy lived, featured a large upper room. You see that in Mark 14, verse 15. Now, how many of you have been reading in the Bible, or have you heard of the upper room? right? That's kind of a famous room, right? The upper room. Well, the upper room that is in this home is very likely the same upper room that's mentioned in Acts and in other places. This particular place was a meeting place for the disciples who became apostles for the early church. The day of Pentecost, they're in an upper room. There's 120 of them. The Spirit comes on them, flaming tongues of fire, you know, that whole thing. So, The guy who lives in this house, his home is the one that has the upper room. And this home would have been the home of a gal by the name of Mary, an early convert of Christ, who is the mother of John Mark, or Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark. So... This is really interesting. This, this is very likely that house in that upper room. This guy carrying the jar of water could have been John Mark. Could have been. Certainly could have been. Verse 19 says, the disciples, after giving these instructions, they were to go and do this. It says, the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Now let's look at section 2. So that was section 1, the preparations. Section 2, the dirty deed. Verses 20 through 25. through 25, when it was evening... ...so they're already there, right? When it was evening, he reclined, speaking of Jesus... ...at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said... ...truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful... ...and began to say uh, to him one after the other... ...is it I, Lord? He answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me... ...will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him... But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed, exclamation point. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And then in verse 25, it says, Judas, who would betray him, answered, is it I, rabbi? He said to him, you have said so. So when supper time came, Jesus, you know, reclined at the table with his 12 disciples. They're all present. Now, why did Jesus recline at the table rather than sit? Well, first, it was customary to recline rather than to sit. And I I know that would be different for us, right? We don't recline at tables. We don't sit Indian style or basically lay on the floor kind of sideways at tables. Our tables are, you know, four feet or three feet off the floor. We sit in chairs. So these tables were only like 18 inches off the floor and so you had to recline at it but I think more significantly than that the Jews would actually lean on their left side they would recline at the dinner table and they would lean on their left side to accentuate the fact that they had been freed. So they would sit in in, in a particular they would take a particular posture when sitting at the dinner table and it was symbolic of their freedom. You know, we just sit down to eat. You know? That's, it's, it's the thing that's so fascinating about the Jewish people is they've got symbolism for everything. He would sit and kind of lean on their left side, and that symbolized freedom. In ancient times, only free people had the luxury of reclining at tables. So it was only the free people that had the ability to do this. And then secondly, as I said, the tables were short. You really couldn't sit at these tables. You couldn't get your knee under them. One commentator wrote, the ancient Near Eastern custom of total relaxation was not too far from our modern couch potato with remote control motif. They would relax around uh, a low table sprawled out on pillows being served by the help. So that's kind of what a Middle Eastern back then meal would look like. And I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty good. Right. If I tried to do that at my house, my wife would say, get up off the floor. You've got dog hair all over you. And she'd say, thanks for sweeping it up with your pants. This is is what they did then. It's really cool. And then it says, as they were eating, a typical Passover meal consisted of several different sort of ritualistic elements. It featured a benediction, uh, multiple hand washings. Several prayers, you know, the singing of certain psalms, uh, several cups of wine, like four cups of wine, and and people are like, hey, I like this, four cups of wine, Uh, an appetizer, bitter herbs, unleavened bread, which means yeastless bread, some dipping, and they would dip into what's called the sop, and I don't know about you, but that's a big food turnoff for me. Come over and have some sop, you know, but that's just what they called it. They would dip you know, some of these things into the sop. And then you had the main meal as well, which featured lamb and vegetables and more unleavened bread. I mean, this was quite the spread. The Gospel of John says that at one point during this particular Passover meal, Jesus stood up, okay, like after it got started, he stood up, he tied a towel around his waist, and he called for his disciples to join him in a different section of the room. He then proceeded to wash their feet. Now, this was also customary, uh, but not just at Passover, but in Jewish homes. Usually, when you entered a Jewish home, the first thing that you would do is the low servants of that household would wash your feet. You just think about it. You're a sandal boy, and this is desert. Your feet are going to be toe up. So, you know, you enter a house, the first thing they do is clean up your feet. And I tell you, that would have been a nasty job. That was like for not the servant that makes the beds. That was for the servant that is assigned the duty of washing the nasty tore up feet. But when you entered a Jewish home, that's the first thing they would do. If they had any kind of means at all or servants, they would have one servant who ranked lower than the others wash your feet. It was a very humbling thing, but it was a good thing. because You wouldn't want to enter a home feeling kind of dirty right after you walked a great distance or something like that. This was something for the low-ranking house servants, if you will. And here we see Jesus take it upon himself to do this very thing for his disciples. But he doesn't do it when they entered the upper room like you would do traditionally, or even downstairs at the front door. He waits where the meal actually gets started, and then he kind of interrupts it and does it, which is just phenomenal. That's in John 13, 3 through 12. He took it upon himself to lower himself to the lowest form of servant to do this for them. And he actually used it as an illustration. He told them, man, I'm setting for you an example that this is how you should treat one another. You shouldn't be, you know, and a little later in the meal they were arguing about who the greatest is. It's like, boy, that's not the point of this whole Christian thing. We should be humble enough to do the lowest remedial tasks for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's the example that he's trying to set because at this point, these guys are just beefed with pride and, you know, and, and that's so often what learning perpetuates in us is pride and all this. I mean, they got to walk with Jesus. And so he's, he humbles himself and does this and teaches them that this is my way of life. Follow my example and humble yourselves and do the lowest kinds of things for one another. That's what you should be doing. Now, they resumed, you know, went back to the table after the foot washing, while passing the morsels and dipping and eating them, Jesus said something that just, it really just shocked the entire room, I say, with the exception of one person. It did shock him in a way, but not the same way. He made a statement that kind of, it like took this beautiful kind of kumbaya, foot washing, great food, great wine moment, and just kind of blew it up. He says something that just blew it to pieces. This would be like that, you know, that person at your at your dinner party, and everything's going really well, and then he speaks for some reason out of line, and everyone's going, "You've got to be kidding me!" And that used to be me most of my life. I would say things that just blew people out, and it's like, I can't, "Why did you invite Phil? I didn't." He showed up. Jesus had one of those moments right here where he says something that's just shocking. He says, "Truly, I say to you." And when he says, "Truly," It's like tripled truth. It's like, okay, I'm going to tell you something that's true, but it's heightened. This is like true, true. So he says, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Talk about a killjoy, right? Like, wow, what's he talking about? Are you kidding me? And it says in the text, the disciples became filled with sorrow and they began to sort of ramble on. Is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? Each one of them's kind of going down the chain. Is it I? Is it I? And, and right now they're kind of probably thinking, okay, okay Jesus is, is utilizing his sovereign divine power and he's looking ahead. They knew he was God and he's seeing what one of us is doing and all these guys are saying, man, I hope it's not me. What are you seeing? What are you saying? Are you uttering some kind of a prophecy or something? What does this mean? And basically, all of them are saying, oh, is it I, Lord? And they're, in their hearts, they're saying, oh, I hope it's not. And what heightens all of this is that in the ancient Near East, the eating of a meal with someone was considered a mark of total and absolute friendship. So the fact that all these guys are in there eating with Jesus shows that Jesus considers them to be very, very close Friends, They were invited to partake of the Passover, the most significant meal of the year, with their Lord. And so they're thinking, we're all friends, we're all pals, this is a beautiful moment. And then they begin to think, this is the worst possible time. And it's it's not even comprehensible that one of us in this room would be aiming to betray you. We're here as friends. And so that 's why they 're so sorrowful they 're thinking we 've been invited to a meal with this guy we 've been with him for darn near three years. How could one of us even think of doing such a thing and to be hiding that to be lying and to be a hypocrite to that level to even receive the the invitation to come to a meal like this while entertaining the idea of betrayal and death that 's what 's going through their minds they 're totally in absolute shocked. The fact that they 're all there and that one of them is going to betray just it just it's incredible. This is absolute treachery. This was literally the lowest thing you could do. Now the disciples were well aware that Jesus had enemies. Oh, they, 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 they weren't you know obtuse. They weren't, they weren't blind to the fact that Christ had enemies. The religious leaders had been after him since pretty much day one. Most of them had been with him since just right after day one. So they knew that... They knew that he had enemies. This was no secret. But they had no idea that there was an enemy within their own ranks. No idea. This was inconceivable. And yet, one of them knew exactly what Jesus was referring to. He knew. He wasn't taken by surprise. He wasn't shocked by the revelation. Okay? The other guys were shocked by this revelation. This one person in particular, he was not shocked by the revelation. I believe he was shocked because he had just found out that Jesus knew what he was up to. He's sitting there thinking, well, I know it's me. And then he's thinking, how in the heck does he know this? He's not shocked by the revelation. He's shocked by the fact that Jesus is on to me. And the rest of these guys are going to be on to me in a moment here. Each of them continued to ask over and over and over, Is it I, Lord? And then Jesus responded, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. Right at that moment, Jesus and Judas were dipping their bread into the sop at the same time. Right at that moment. Both hands went in at the same time, and he says this. And what's incredible about it is that there isn't one disciple at the table that's able to put it together. They're not going, they're going, oh, how can it be me? How could it? They're still distracted by this. They can't do the math. They were too startled. They were too concerned with, man, I hope it's not me. I hope it's not me. And then Jesus continues to say something. He says, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. He's saying these things as the betrayer is dipping in the sop with him. Boy, if this isn't a call to repentance, I don't know what is. This is as strong as warning as you can get. And I might just add that there are times when we interact with people that do not know the Lord that, that require maybe a nurturing kind of evangelism or whatever. And there are times that where you just have to be straightforward with people and tell them where they're headed. This is one of those moments where Jesus just puts this warning out and it's like it's meant to shock. Now it's important to, to note that Jesus did not fall into Judas's trap. Okay, But rather Judas, by his wicked rejection of Christ, became an instrument of God's plan. That's the right way to look at this. The betrayal had been written ages beforehand in the pages of divine prophecy. Jesus was delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. It says in Acts 2.23. Judas's malicious decision to reject and betray Christ was used by God in fulfilling Christ's mission. Now our God is sovereign, and he takes some of these dastardly things and, and, and weaves them into accomplishing and fulfilling His purposes, which is incredible. I have been trying to take some of my dastardly deeds and foolishness throughout probably the last several decades and trying to thread them into something good and they do pr- not produce anything fruitful <laughs> just sorrow and we all do that we all have our regrets and some somehow God takes things that are despicable and horrible and and turns them into something that he redeems them in a sense and makes them produce his will which is what is best it's pretty amazing I like how MacArthur put it. He said, an unholy man in the hands of a holy God was used to accomplish a holy purpose. I love that. I love the simplicity of that. God is sovereign and he uses all things to bring about his purposes and plans. Now I hear people say all the time, God has a plan for your life, you know, believe in Jesus and he will show it to you or he will use you. And the problem with this statement is, I know people intend the right thing through it, but it implies that God doesn't have a plan for the reprobate, those who will never be saved. Well, of course he has a plan for them, Phil. His only plan for them is hell. Not true. This is completely untrue. And Judas proves it, doesn't he? Judas proves that God uses unbelievers to accomplish his purposes. Somehow we train ourselves to think that, you know, well, it's just Christians and that's all that God ever works through and uses and that's all he's ever focused on and he doesn't really have anything to do with the rest of the world and it's just kind of imploding. Okay, if if that's our view, then we don't have a God who is sovereign. We don't have a God who works all things. For our benefit. We don't have a God who, who, who orchestrates and works and threads and, and even manipulates and causes, He will cause all things to redound for His glory. That's my paraphrase of 2 Corinthians 4:15. All things will redound for the glory of God. It's not just the Christian things that will redound for the glory of God. He takes them all and works them in such a way. And the beauty of that is that he can be without guilt. He can be without sin. He can be fully righteous and holy as he does it because he doesn't have to commit the acts. We do it and then he uses them. Somehow his holiness and his righteousness are upheld while all these things play out. And I tell you what, that, that's a mystery how that works. He doesn't have to commit sin to use sin to accomplish his purposes. He lets us do that. And we love it. We love to do it. Woo! All things will redound for the glory of God. Now, Jesus continued, and he says this statement, which which I agree with and I disagree with. I know what he means. And I rarely disagree. Well, I shouldn't say I rarely disagree with Jesus. I pretty much disagree with him on almost all things. That's why I need God's grace. But I tend to not disagree with the Lord, right? And he says this statement that caused me to say, huh? He says, it would have been better for that man if he had not been born. I say, I'm so glad he was born. And I don't say that with malice in my heart. I'm glad he did what he did so he could get, so he could, Jesus could get to the cross so he could die and burn in hell. That's not what I mean. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. I guess we could say, well, if he had not been born, then God would have used somebody else to accomplish his purpose. But that's not the way God works. He doesn't react to anything. Judas was the son of perdition from eternity past. I'm sad that his destiny is hell, but I'm glad that he was born to accomplish the purpose of God because without his betrayal, there's no redemption. So I I agree with the statement, but I kind of am challenged by it. But I don't think that's what Jesus means. Jesus is not saying he just shouldn't have been born. What Jesus was trying to accentuate here, and what he was trying to communicate through this statement, was that the terror and horror that Judas was about to experience in hell would not be worth the price of being born. Judas' future in hell was so terrifying that he would have been infinitely better off if he had not been born. That would be the way to look at that statement. Judas is the most graphic and tragic example of the people about whom the writer of Hebrews mentioned in Hebrews 10. Those who hear the gospel and yet trample Christ underfoot reject him. Those who profane his shed blood. I don't want anything to do with that blood. I don't care if you shed his blood for my sin. I don't even have sin. That blood's stupid. Those who hear the gospel and reject the gospel, those who trample Christ underfoot, like just the absolute lowest level of disrespect, you're under my foot, you're dirt. They treat Jesus like that. Those who, who reject and, 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 and curse and profane his blood can expect To receive judgment, fury, and fire. That's what Hebrews 10 makes lucidly clear. That is what Jesus is making lucidly clear by saying he'd He'd be better off if he had never been born. In an attempt to mask his true identity as the betrayer or traitor, Judas played along with the other disciples. He said, is it I, Rabbi? Rabbi? I mean, think about it right now. If he doesn't ask the same question, the disciples are going to be on to him, aren't they? Everyone here is screaming about if it's them, and why are you sitting there with, you know, pita bread hanging out of your mouth? With a lamb kebab. Why are you tripping, dude? And so he decides to play along, doesn't he? Is it I, Rabbi? And I don't think he was... Re- he was expecting this response from the Lord, "You have said so." His way of saying, "Absolutely." Now, for whatever reason, the, the other disciples did not hear this exchange either. Again, they were too busy. Uh, weird combination of maybe eating and blaming themselves. I don't know what was going on, but they were not focused. They were not paying attention. It says in John 13, 24 to 26, that Peter privately asked John to question Jesus about the betrayer's identity. Okay, look, I can't, Peter's saying, I can't figure out who it is here, John. I'm missing the forest for the trees. Can you ask, I mean, you're the one that's really like super close to him. You rest your head on his bosom right here during the thing. You've seen the Da Vinci painting. You're the one chilling close to him. I don't know if that's really how it went down, but you're chilling, you're close. Can you ask him for me who it is? And John obliges Peter and does it. He basically says, who is it, Lord? Who, who are you referring to? And Jesus said, I will dip a morsel in the sop and give it to the betrayer. This is what's playing out at the same time in John's account of what's happening. So it's, it's not just that we had our hands in there at the same time. It's not just that, yeah, it's this guy that I'm dipping with right now. Right now, he's like, okay, I, you haven't gotten it yet, but how about if I do this? And hand it to him. And Peter's probably still scratching his head. I don't get it. I mean, they literally did not. They had no. They, this is how good Judas is or was at deception. It's not that they didn't see Jesus interacting with Judas. It's that they, it was incomprehensible that Judas would have been up to something like this. That's how well he played the role. Now, he was good. This guy, Oscar nomination right here course he was the treasurer of the group which means that you're trusted you don't give the money to the guy that goes to black oak every weekend i wonder why we're always broke you've got to be somebody who's trustworthy to hang on to the dough well he had them so fooled it's not that they couldn't see or hear it's that they wouldn't because it didn't make any sense for judas to be the culprit he dips and he gives it to Judas and then it says again in John when Judas took the morsel it says Satan entered him Satan entered him this was not an evil spirit or a minion of Satan this was not a demon this was the supreme adversary of God And the ruler of darkness, Satan himself. Satan himself entered Judas. I think to make sure that the job got done. Thank you, Satan, for being stupid. You just bought our redemption. You see how God even uses him? Really, if you think about it, when Satan entered Judas, he became hellish to the core of his being in a way that perhaps no other human being ever has. In betraying the Son of God, Judas became the arch-sinner of all human history. Right? I mean, how many times has Judas been used as an illustration to show how bad we can be or how bad a person is? Some parents say, you're acting to their son, you're acting like Judas. That's pretty hardcore. I mean, he's just, he's got to be the most infamous person of all time because of what he did. Remember that, that betrayal with a kiss in the Garden of Gethsemane that happens after this? He is known as that notorious, horrible friend, but not a friend betraying person. And I'll tell you what, at this point, Jesus had had enough. That's it. Jesus draws a line in the sand. Right now at this moment, he becomes possessed by Satan. Jesus had enough, enough, that's it. He was not going to allow Judas to continue with the rest of the meal or participate in the institution of communion and the new covenant. He was not about to let let him to continue on with the meal because the most sanctified, sacred part of it was about to happen. And, and, And you cannot be here for that. In John 13, 27, it says, Jesus said to Judas, what you are going to do, do quickly. And in verse 30 of that same chapter, it says, he went out immediately. Judas left, hands him the morsel, possessed. Jesus says, go do what you're going to do quickly. He leaves. And it says in John, it became night. Or it was night. And that doesn't mean that it was dark spiritually. It was nighttime. Judas was gone. He'd left the party. He was not present during what happened next. And I say this because there are people out there who say differently. They argue that Judas stayed for the whole meal and participated in the very first communion and that is why it is okay for unbelievers like him to participate. Which is probably one of the dumbest things I've ever heard. Well look, Judas was there. Well if you read, if you read one gospel you get the sense that he was there for the whole meal. If you read a couple of them together you'll understand John's the only one who puts together a real legitimate timeline. When these guys authored these books, they weren't trying to stick to a perfect chronological timeline. They were highlighting events. So you have to look at all of the Gospels at once. That's one of the things that's so challenging about teaching a Gospel. You have to kind of have them all in mind if you're going to try to teach it chronologically. Chronologically, he was gone. He left right after that handing the morsel. Jesus wasn't about to let him participate in in one of two sacraments that have been instituted for us? That's not the place for unbelievers. It's absurd to suggest that Judas was there for the whole meal and he participated in communion. He was there and he ate part of the meal. He was there and he got his feet washed. He wasn't there during the most important part. He was gone and the scriptures clearly teach that communion is for believers only and that those who... Uh, partake of it in an unworthy manner are guilty and will be punished. It is for believers only. It's sacred. It's important. It's about remembrance, about the thing. We'll talk about that. And that brings us to section three, the New Covenant. The New Covenant, verses 26 through 29, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, so Judas is gone. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So after Judas left, Jesus and the 11 faithful disciples resumed. The first thing that we need to notice is that the passage we just read shows that Jesus transformed the original Passover meal into something new. MacArthur put it like this, Jesus transformed the Passover of the Old Covenant into communion of the New Covenant. And I like what R.C. Sproul said about it as well. He, He wrote, this was audacious, but Jesus was the one person in the world who had the authority to do it. He's speaking of making the change. After all, the Passover was about Him because He is the Lamb of God. He had the right to give To give it new meaning. He had the right to give um, new meaning to this Old Testament rite. He was about to fulfill the Passover. So it was entirely appropriate and timely uh, for him to make the changes he instituted that night. So what we're looking at here is that he takes what they'd been doing for so long and he takes it and he transforms it into something else. He makes an adjustment. He changes some of the components, or at least the symbolism of them, I would say. Jesus took a piece of bread and he tore it into 11 pieces and handed one to each of his disciples. He said, take, eat, this is my body. And after they ate that bread, he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out. For many, for the forgiveness of sins. There has been endless, endless debate and controversy surrounding the words, this is my body. Endless controversy surrounding what he said right there. Some say that Jesus was speaking literally. Like the bread literally became his body. Later, during the 11th century, the Catholic Church developed what is known as transubstantiation. Transubstantiation says that when a priest, a Roman Catholic priest, consecrates the communion elements, the bread and the wine, or the bread, really, through a special ritual, a miracle occurs. And the bread is transformed into the literal body, and, and I'd say the wine too, into the literal body and blood of Christ while keeping only the appearances of bread and wine. Notable leaders such as Martin Luther held this view. Is this what Jesus meant? Is that what he had in mind? Well, somebody I, and I, I do respect Luther, and he said, was a tremendous leader in the church. Um, Calvin had a problem with the idea. Uh, well, like him too. He, uh, he remembered the Council of Chalcedon in AD 451... ...where the church declared that in the mystery of the incarnation... ...Christ had two natures. He had a dual nature. The divine nature and the human nature were joined together in perfect unity. And that union was without mixture... ...without confusion, without separation... Without division, each nature return, uh, retaining its own attributes. And what he's saying is that, is that Christ was fully God and fully man, and somehow that all worked together without confusing or frustrating or contaminating. Now, the divine nature can be in many places at once because it's not bound to a human body. I mean, God is spirit, which means that Christ is spirit. Okay, so the divine nature, think in terms of this, the divine nature can be in many places at once, but not the human nature. Human nature is limited in space and time by the creatureliness of the body. Now, Christ still has a physical body. I mean, when when he came down, and when the Holy Spirit, you know, and He came down as Spirit and, and, and you know, and went into the form of a baby in Mary, He took on human flesh, a human body. And He still has that physical body. And what does that mean? It means that the physical nature of Christ still has limitations. It means that. that In physical form, Christ can only manifest himself at one place at a time. Now, I know there's going to be objections to that. Some of you might be thinking, but he received a glorified body at his resurrection. And so that his body is not limited anymore, Pastor Phil. He has a glorified body. And how do you know his physical nature isn't limited? Show me one example from Scripture where Christ is physically present at more than one place at a time after his resurrection. Find one. You won't. After he rose from the grave, he appeared in physical form 12 times before different groups and individuals. He appeared before the women at the tomb. He appeared before his disciples. He appeared before the pilgrims on the road to Emmaus. He appeared before a group of 500 people. He appeared before Paul on the Damascus road. None of these people or groups experienced the physical presence of Christ at the same time. They were all separate visitations and separate events. Christ wasn't in front of the 500 physically and in front of you know somebody else at the same time. So, if the physical body of Christ is limited to being at one place at a time, how can he manifest his physical presence in all of the communion bread which is being consumed at the same time in churches everywhere? He can't. And he does not. You see, we have to be careful not to literalize the things in Scripture that are not intended to be literalized. In John 8 12, Jesus referred to himself as the light. If we apply the same logic, then Jesus became a literal oil lamp. (laughs) You see the folly? In John 10, 9, Jesus referred to himself as a door. If we apply the same logic, then Jesus became a literal door. And I have yet to meet anyone who thinks that Jesus became a door. At least I hope I never cross paths with one. But I'm sure with the direction that things are headed in, we'll find somebody that believes it. But many believe in transubstantiation. It's a fallacy based on poor exegesis. We need to be careful not to confuse the physical nature of Christ with the divine nature of Christ. His physical nature is limited, but his divine nature is not. In his divine nature, Christ is omnipresent, which means that he can be in more than one place at a time. He can be everywhere. He is everywhere in a sense. In our text, Jesus was speaking symbolically and pointing to his ability to be present in spirit in all of his churches during communion. The bread represents his body and divine presence. It's not a literal manifestation of his physical presence. It represents his presence. When you take this bread, I am here with you in spirit. I am here with you in my divine nature. My divine presence is here. That's what he meant. The blood represents his shed blood for the remission of our sin. During communion, the elements remain elements. But they do represent his divine presence and his divine work. When we partake of them rightly, when we have confessed our sin, obviously we're believers and we've confessed our sin, We enter into that moment humbly when we partake of them rightly. We can know that he is here with us in his divine presence doing what? Showering us with his love, mercy, and grace. It's really important that we get this right. Now look at the phrase, this is my blood of the covenant. Jesus gave the wine. So he gave the bread new meaning. And he, and he gave the wine of the Passover meal new meaning. One of the, the cups, or maybe all of it, I guess, I didn't look into it in that much detail, but it, it is tied to the, the, the wine in the cups. It does represent, during the original Passover, it represents the blood of the lambs that were slain during the very first Passover. So there's a tie there. So at the Passover meal, if you were Jewish and you were drinking the wine, you would be thinking of your deliverance, you would be thinking of the blood of the lambs, you would be thinking that's how God rescued his people and preserved them. But here we read that Jesus tied it to his own blood, which he was about to shed at Calvary, which had to do with instituting a new covenant. Under the old covenant, people of faith received temporary forgiveness through the blood of lambs. Under the new covenant, people of faith would receive permanent forgiveness through the blood of the Lamb, Jesus himself. There's how he switches it. When we drink the juice, and in some churches they drink wine, when we drink the juice, we are acknowledging that we have received by faith the blood of Christ, which is our only means of forgiveness. And that's not the only thing that Jesus did here. He changed those elements to represent him, his presence and his blood. That's not what they represented before. He changed it up there. But he did more than just instituting Passover or instituting communion here. He did more than that. During this first communion, he also pointed to the future where he will dwell with us physically forever and ever. Communion is twofold. It is about remembrance But it is also about looking forward. Look at verse 29. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus was speaking of his return. When he comes back, he will defeat his enemies and establish his kingdom. And one of the first things he's going to do is throw an amazing party unlike anyone before. It is called the Wedding Supper of the Lamb. You can read about it in Revelation 19.9. I believe that it will be at this supper where Jesus will once again take up the cup of blessing and enjoy the fruit of the vine with his people. So when we we celebrate communion, we're we're thinking about what he did, but we're thinking about what he's going to do. closing what does the last supper have to do with the work of christ isn't that what we've been studying in our series we've taken all of these major events and we've paralleled them with the work of christ or we've drawn the work of christ out of those events And we must do the same thing here. So what does the Last Supper have to do with the work of Christ? I almost feel like, what doesn't it have to do with it? Well, at the Last Supper, Christ instituted the New Covenant, which has to do with His sacrifice as the Lamb of God, His blood, and our forgiveness. The Last Supper was a cardinal moment in redemptive history. It marked the end of the Old Covenant, And the beginning of the new covenant. And it is under this new covenant that God has made a way for all people. Jew and Gentile alike. To be saved by grace alone. Through faith alone. In Christ alone. In accordance with scripture alone. And unto the glory of God alone. Now that's not to say that God did not have a plan to save people through the old covenant. But the way in was really to convert to Judaism. And make the sacrifices and do all of that. That's what's so amazing about the New Covenant, friends. I wouldn't call it easy because dying to self and carrying a cross really isn't the easiest thing in the world. But we certainly don't have to ascribe to and fulfill all of the law and obey every ordinance. There's over 600 of them. Just try to do the top 10. It's by faith in the New Covenant and faith alone. Now, was it by faith in the Old Covenant? Yes, in a sense, but it was followed by these actions. Here, it's just faith. You believe. I love what R.C. Sproul said about this moment. He says, people say that the church was born on the day of Pentecost. I disagree. It was born right here when this happened. Because this is when the new covenant was activated. And it was ratified the very next day by his blood on the cross. That's something interesting to ponder because we always say, well, on the day of Pentecost when the spirit came, that's when the church was born. Well, hold on a second. There were 120 believers before that moment. So the church existed before Pentecost. This right here what we're seeing at the last supper has to do with the institution of the church. And the very next day he ratified it. You know, all covenants, scripturally speaking, all covenants had to be ratified by blood. Covenant was activated this night, the very next day, it was ratified, it was purchased, it was, it, was, it, was, it was bought, if you will, by His shed blood at Calvary. That's what it has to do with the work of Christ. I have no application for you other than communion, which we celebrate about this time every Sunday. We have learned that during the Last Supper, Christ transformed the Passover meal into communion and simultaneously brought the Old Covenant to an end and instituted the new covenant, which does have to do with his sacrifice, blood, and forgiveness, our forgiveness. When you, after you retrieve the bread and juice from the communion tables on the sides and return to your seats, I I want you to acknowledge Christ's divine presence because those elements represent that. When you pick them up, he is saying, I'm here. You're not going to eat his literal body when you eat that bread. You are eating at his supper table that's to come. You are in his presence. I want you to acknowledge his divine presence and, 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 and you need to confess any sin that you have in your life. And you need to remember what he did for you. Remember how he was broken for you. Remember how he bled for you. And, 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 and give some gratitude to him. Thank him for his love, mercy, and grace. But don't stop there. Think about the future. Christ is coming again to finish what he started. During this time, envision yourself sitting at his banqueting table, enjoying the best food, the best drink, and the best fellowship you'll ever experience. Oh, what a day that will be when he returns to make his enemies his footstool, to establish his millennial kingdom to kick it off with a supper party that's... Have you, ever, have you ever seen Gatsby? You've seen the dinner parties that guy throws in that movie? It's pretty extravagant. It Nay, nothing compared to what's coming. You just think about it for a moment. Gatsby probably had about a 1,000 people on his property during those parties. It's going to be millions and millions and millions and millions of her brothers and sisters at this dinner hey i'm a dj i work weddings all the time and i've seen caterers struggle to feed 120 i can't even imagine how all 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 of us are going to get fed it's going to be amazing you take those elements and you're sitting there you ponder that future meal it's going to be great